Nick, thanks so much for sharing. Guys, I just had total catastrophe happen. I dropped like everything on the floor, so uh, sorry about that. Roll Bobbies. It's the only way to redeem that moment. So, uh, But truthfully, uh, Nick, I'm so thankful for what you shared because I think that what you touched on in your story connects so well with uh, the passage that we're going to we're going to look at tonight, so it makes me quite excited for our time together. And uh, for those of you who are here for the first time, I realize that for a lot of you, this is maybe your first time at 180. I just want to welcome you again. So glad that you're here. And as Jared mentioned, um, our desire is for 180 to be a place that whether, whether you would identify as a Christian um, or you wouldn't, that this would be a place that you feel welcome, that you're able to connect and dive into uh, what we're doing here. Um, and so we've been doing this series called Encountering Jesus for the last few weeks um, and it's just been, yeah, it's been really exciting. But before we get into this series, um, I just want to officially declare fall is here, y'all. Like it's been looking like fall, but not feeling like fall. It's here. And I hope it's here to stay. And of course, one of my favorite things about fall is uh, the great sport of football that comes with the season of fall. And of course, one of the best things about football um, are football fans, right? And when it comes to football fans, you guys all know this, there's really just kind of a spectrum, right, when it comes to football fans. Um, at one end, you have what we would call um, your fair weather fans. These are the people that um, until your team reaches the Super Bowl, you had no idea that this person even knew what the sport of football was, um, right? Or, you know, if the Bobcats make it to a championship game, you, they're like, oh, yeah, I can't wait, like, this is great, like, oh, man, I love football, and you're like, really? Like, Really? Like, you're about that? And they're like, yeah, like, yeah, throw the three-pointer in. Like, it's great, yeah. And so, um, but then you got, you know, maybe down here in the middle, you have your, your loyalists. These are, these are loyal fans. These are people that maybe watch a game or two on TV. They go to a game. They, they cheer for most games. And then at the other end, you have your crazies, your, your roll bobbies, okay? Um, your... These are your fanatics. I mean, when I think about these guys, these are, the du- these are like the dudes that are like in their 40s or 50s at like the Bengals games that are like decked out in color, have like horns on their head, like they have like the football emblem like on their calf. Like it's like, okay, maybe that's your dad, okay? That's all right if that's the case, but that's all right, okay? So we, we got like these spectrum of football fans, right? And I think that, you know, if we're honest, I think a lot of times... We think of Christians on a similar kind of spectrum. So rather than a fair weather fan, maybe you have a person that they claim to be a Christian, uh, but apart from them saying that they're a Christian, there is nothing in their life to suggest that they're a Christian. Maybe quite the opposite. Maybe we would even call these people hypocrites. And maybe in the middle, uh, you have your uh, people that maybe go to a Bible study, maybe are here, come to this, you know, come to 180 weekly, maybe go to church, like they kind of live out their faith. Um, and then you have uh, maybe a Christian that you would call a fanatic. And how do you know a fanatic? It's because as soon as worship music comes on, their hands are like right there, just <laughs> straight up, right? Like oceans, oceans comes on, bam, I'm up. Like it's straight up. And so those, these people, the, they scare us. Like, man, why are you reaching so high? Like these people, they're like, well, I think my hands can stay right here. And these other people are like, I might come like right up here. And these people, boom, right up top, right? So you have your, you know, your spectrum of Christians. Um, joking aside, I mean, that's, that's an unfair caricature. But, but I think, you know, for people in our culture, we're, we're really afraid of fanaticism, aren't we? Um, it it kind of scares us. And a lot of times it's because we know that there's real evil that's being done by 
people that call themselves, you know, that are religious fanatics. And that's not just, you know, religious fanatics of other religions. There's been religious fanatics even within Christianity that have done a lot of evil as well. And so it scares us. And so um, at one end, I think a lot of us as Christians, if you're a Christian, you kind of look at it and you're like, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite, but I don't want to be a fanatic, so I'm going to stay right here in the middle. Um, I don't want to be, you know, be marked by hypocrisy, but I don't want to be a crazy. So um, this whole Christianity thing, I'm going to kind of kick, you know, kick the brakes on it and live it out in moderation. But here's the question I want to ask tonight, is that when Jesus calls us to follow him, does he call us to follow him in moderation? How much of our lives and how much of our devotion does he really demand? And so what we're going to look at tonight is a fascinating interaction between Jesus um, and a guy who asks him what he needs to do to have eternal life. And so surprisingly, Jesus responds to his question, and he says, you only lack one thing. And so this is where we're going to go. So turn with me, if you would, to Mark 10, if you have a Bible. Um, We're going to start in verse 17. And it says here in verse 17, As he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, All these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here tonight. And Lord, I know that each person is here not by accident, but with purpose, with meaning, knowing full well that you wish to speak to each one of us tonight, exactly where we're at. And so, Father, I pray that... uh, that you would speak through me, Holy Spirit, that you would empower me, that you would help me to serve my friends tonight. And I pray for them, and I pray for myself, that you would work in our hearts. I pray that you would give us ears to hear the things that we would have to say, and the things that are distracting us in this moment, our cell phones buzzing or whatever it is that's going on outside, I pray that those things wouldn't be a distraction, and that in this moment we'd be dialed in and listening and trying to hear what you would want to say to us tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me tell you where we're going to go with this passage tonight, okay? So Jesus tells this guy he lacks one thing. The guy comes and says, what do I need to do to have eternal life? You lack one thing. But before we look into what that one thing was, I want to look at first, what was it that this guy didn't lack? Like, what is it that he had? Then we'll look at what it was that he lacked. And last, we'll look at what this means for us and how we should respond, okay? So, Let's look at what this guy didn't lack. We'll begin in verse 17, okay? So here we go. Um, Verse 17. Um, What's interesting is we look at this passage. We actually know 
more about this guy than this passage just tells us because this, this story doesn't just show up in the Gospel of Mark. It also shows up in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke as well. And so Matthew tells us that this guy's young. Um, Luke calls him a ruler, and Mark tells us that he is rich, okay? Therefore, this, this guy is known as the rich young ruler. And we like rich young people, right? Like, we're, we're about that. Like, maybe you'd like to be a rich young person, you know, ruler yourself. You'd, you'd be into this kind of life, all right? Um, and so uh, the fact is, when we think about this guy, I have to say, ladies, I'm really sorry. He's, he's probably not available, okay? Um, and uh, he's not probably a religious ruler because he's, he's too young to be some kind of spiritual ruler. We don't quite know what exactly he's a ruler of, but the best way to think about this guy, this dude would have been a cultural icon, all right? He would have been the, the guy that other guys want to be, other girls want to be with, would have been on People magazine. Like, this guy had some swagger uh, when he walked around. All right? So he had status. He's well-respected. And this is the kind of person that's coming to Jesus with this question. And so uh, a couple of things that we can gather just from this passage, if you look at it real quickly, what is this guy not lacking? Because the passage tells us that he runs up and drops to his knees in front of Jesus. So he's not, he's not lacking sincerity. He's not even lacking humility. He's willing to get on his knees in front of Jesus. And look at what he says to Jesus. He even calls Jesus good teacher. Now, to us, you're like, wow, that's a superlative, good teacher. But actually, that was. Um, because even how Jesus responds, Jesus kind of pushes back on that comment because he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, for us, we use the word good a lot. How's your day? It's good. How was your test? Good. It's all good. How was the food? Good. It was good. How was the It's good. It's good. It's all good. Good. Okay? It was good which means it was fine. It was nothing, nothing. Good, good means nothing to us. Um, but in, in the first century Judaism, uh, Jewish culture, it would, have, it would have meant a lot because good was only ascribed to God alone, just like Jesus says here. And so this man, he doesn't come to Jesus believing that Jesus is God, but he at the very least reveres Jesus. Uh, he respects him. And the question that he asked Jesus is the million-dollar one, isn't it? Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, somewhat surprisingly, how does Jesus respond? Jesus begins by listing off in kind of a summation way the Ten Commandments. He says, honor your parents, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal. And the guy goes, yeah, aced it. Like the Ten Commandments course, since I was like kicking it when I was like two years old, I've been holding an A-plus in this class, okay? Uh, I've, been, I've been doing the whole Christian thing. Uh, again, you know, God's Not Dead's my favorite movie, Jesus. Uh, you know, did you see my hands in worship? Like, straight up, like, I'm, I'm doing well at the whole, like, do, being a good person, obeying God kind of thing. And we might be inclined, inclined to actually laugh at him because we know no one can actually uphold the Ten Commandments. No one can live those all out perfectly. But in Judaism... It was actually believed that you could uphold the whole law, that you could actually be perfect as it, really, as it relates to the law. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes this claim for himself that he, as to the law, he was perfect. And so this guy's not only humble, he's not only sincere, this brother's extremely religious, right? And so despite all of his perfect obedience, something's still unsettling him. Because he's, there's a reason why he's coming to Jesus, asking this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Even despite all of these things he's, he's doing, 
it's still not sitting with him well. And so even the, notice this, the question he asks is at its heart a religious question. What must I do? What must I do? Because here's, at, here's what's at the heart of religion is this idea. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's religion. You do the dance, you get the reward. That's religion. And so it's interesting because if that's how religion works, our obedience to God is a way of putting God in our debt. I do this, you do this. That's how this works. So even this question that this guy's bringing to this guy is a religious question. Jesus, what do I need to do to put God in my debt so that he gives me eternal life? That's the question he asks. And just to be abundantly clear for a moment, that is the opposite of Christianity. You hear me? Christianity isn't do this, get this. Instead, it's about Jesus did this for you and you get what he did as a result of his life, death, and resurrection. You don't get what you deserve. He gets what you deserve. You get what he deserves. That's Christianity. That's grace. And let me say, friends, we are far more impressed with our good deeds than God is. I've shared this before at 180, but I gotta go there. Isaiah, in the passage 64, 6, it says that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted rag before God. That is the most PG way of saying it. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted rag. You know what polluted rag was actually referring to? It's like when we put our righteous deeds in front of God, it's like packaging up. Like you take about like the most amazing um, like, you know, things that you've done in your life. You put them in a box. You stick it in front of God. He opens it up. Polluted rag is inside. What's a polluted rag? A bloody, smelly tampon. That's a polluted rag. Your best deeds in front of God are like sticking a bloody tampon in his face. I can see the face. You're like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sick. But that's, that's, that's how it is. Our best before God is nothing. It's nasty. And, but that's what, that's what we believe. I obey. That's what religion says. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But that's not how it is. And so what's amazing is that when you operate with Christianity as a religion, in religion, you don't need a savior. In religion, you don't need a savior because you can be your own. You can save yourself through all of your good works. But that is not Christianity. That is not what Jesus calls us to. So here's what's amazing is that this guy is asking Jesus, what do I need to do to put God in my debt? And here's what's crazy. Even though this guy says, I've obeyed all the Ten Commandments, Jesus doesn't laugh at him. Look at what Jesus actually does. Because he doesn't call him a liar. He does this. He said, says this. I love this. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I love that that note, that Mark makes this observation. Jesus loved him. And he tells him that you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor. So this guy comes to Jesus, having done all the right kinds of things, still feeling uncertain of his own salvation. He says, what do I need to do? And you know what drives me freaking nuts? Jesus gives them something to do. Like, didn't we just say that you don't get eternal life based on what you do? It's based on what Jesus has done. But what does Jesus do? He gives them something to do. 
what is going on here? Because if we're, you know, we can go do this Bible study sometime and I can take you to a bunch of passages that would make Jesus look like, it would actually say, you're wrong, Jesus, right now. But we know that Jesus is never wrong, so that can't be what's going on. But here's what it is, is that when it comes to interpreting the Bible, here's rule number one, let scripture interpret scripture. You let scripture interpret scripture. So what is actually going on here? Jesus We know that that's not how salvation is supposed to work, but what is happening? What's happening is that Jesus knows this man's heart. He knows this man's heart. And so by telling this man to sell everything, he's actually using the man's wealth and his money to expose what's inside of his heart. So look how the man responds. He's sorrowful. He's sorrowful. So what is it that the man lacked? I mean, we know, again, we've already talked about it. He didn't, relax, he didn't lack in religiosity. He didn't lack in being humble. He didn't lack being sincere. Is Jesus saying that in order to have eternal life, you have to be poor? You have, to, you have to sell everything? You have to live in a box? Like, what is that? What is Jesus actually saying here? That you have to be an impoverished person to follow him? And just as an aside for a moment, can I be honest with you? Um, I, I did not grow up as a Christian, um, but when I first started reading the Bible and I saw stories like this, they scared the crap out of me. Because I read stories like this, and I was like, great. Here's what happens if you follow Jesus. He makes you sell all your stuff, go probably move to the Amazon, you have to wipe your butt with leaves. Like, that's what happens to people that, like, really follow Jesus. Like, they have to live in a hole somewhere, and uh, life sucks, but hurrah, it's for Jesus. Like, I was just like, man, like, this, really? Like, Jesus, like, this sucks. Um, But that's what, you know, I think we read stories like this, and it's like, oh, gosh, like, that's what has to happen, but that's not true. And I think you, we, how many of you, you know, if you're a Christian, you would say that, Maybe you wouldn't say this, but your heart kind of reveals it, that if you were to give your whole life to Christ, he would ruin it. He'd make you miserable. He'd destroy the things that make you happy. I think that's been so true of my life, that it's like, yeah, Jesus, I'll give you this part of my life because it's easy. It's, I don't know, I, I don't care about it a ton, and yeah, I could use some help, but not this. Like, this is mine. Because if I let you touch this, you're going to take it away. You're going to ruin it. But friends, Jesus hasn't come to ruin you. He hasn't come to ruin us. He hasn't come to steal your joy. He's come to rescue you. He's actually, he is coming to destroy something. But it's not you. It's not your joy. He's out to destroy that which would destroy you. And so often we don't think of things like our career or money or, you know, having things or having a relationship as things that will destroy us. But he is out to destroy something, but it's not you, it's not your joy. He's actually more for your joy than you are. So what was the one thing that the man lacked? Jesus doesn't tell us. Instead, he shows us. What the man lacked was a heart that was fully surrendered to Christ. 
That's what he lacked. He did not have his heart fully surrendered to Jesus. And so the command that Jesus gives him to go sell everything is not a command I don't think Jesus would give to all of us. It's a specific command to a specific man in a specific set of circumstances. Jesus saw this guy could not endure the loss of his wealth. He he couldn't give it up. And here's the truth. When you own something that you can't give away, you don't own it, it owns you. When you own something that you can't let go of, you don't own it, it owns you. When you have a dating relationship that you can't let go of, even though you know God wouldn't have you be in it, you don't own that relationship, it owns you. When you can't give up something that you know that God's calling you to give up, you don't own it, it owns you. You discovered, actually, what your true God is. You can say God, Jesus is your God all you want, but your heart and your actions will show it more than your words will. And so the reality is, is that the love, the adoration, the devotion that this man felt for his wealth, Jesus is jealous for it. He's jealous for it. He's worshiping this wealth because from it, he gets security. Forget it. From, from it, he gets comfort. For from his wealth, he gets joy. And all of those things, he's seeking for his wealth to satisfy. Jesus knows it's going to fail him. It will destroy him. Jesus, just as Nick was talking about, Jesus will not share the throne of your heart. He will not share it. And the fact is, is that money is not evil. Even to have a lot of money is not evil, but the love of money is. You see, for this man, his idol, his God is his wealth. And look at what Jesus says to his disciples in this moment. This guy walks away sorrowful. Jesus turns to his disciples. Their jaws probably on the ground at this point. He looked around and he said, how difficult for those who have college educations to enter the kingdom of God. Sorry. How how difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You see, as college educated Americans, you should be careful. And I know you're going to say, Nick, I'm not rolling deep. Oh, I know. I know. That's why a lot of you are working at Shively. I know. It sucks. You're not rolling deep, but, but very few of you have ever gone a day without food. In the eyes of the world, you're kings. You're kings. And so you should be careful. There's a caution here. Because there's a temptation. Anything that's good can become your God. It's interesting. The things that we worship aren't often bad things. They're often good things that become God things. They're things that we should go running to God looking for security, comfort, joy, all these things. But instead, we run to a person. We run to a paycheck. We run to a job or a status or whatever it is, a person that makes us feel valuable, secure, safe. And God alone is meant to fill that role for you. And so the question is, is does Jesus have the full devotion of your heart? Or is your heart divided in devotion? 
Because I think for so many of us, we're, we, like, we want to follow Jesus right up until the point that it costs us something. Because let's be honest, I'm all about Jesus dying for my sin and covering the screw-ups that I've done. I'm all about Jesus being my Savior. But Jesus being my Lord, I have to bow my knee in every area of my life to him? That's more difficult. It's going to cost me financially. It's going to cost me relationally with people. And the question is, is, would you really rather have drunkenness rather than Christ? I know a lot of you, I know that you go out after 180 and you go down on, on Mill Street and you go party. I know that a lot of you do that on the weekends. Or I know that you're smoking marijuana. It's like, whatever. Like, would you really rather have marijuana than have Christ? Would you rather have your sinful dating relationship than have Jesus? Would you rather be a liar and deceptive and, and, and just cheat your way just so you can get something, like get a better position in your organization or your job than have Christ? Is Christ worth that little to you? Because here's what happens, friends, is that we're called more they're called to more than just being fanatics for Jesus. That's not what you're called to, is to be a fanatic for Christ. I don't care where your hands go during worship. It doesn't matter. It's not the measure of how much your love for Jesus is, is how high your hands go. It's not that simple. It's not that cheap. It's not that small. You see, James Edwards, he says that the call to follow Jesus, it doesn't constitute an additional obligation in life. It's not do all these things plus follow Jesus, he says. He says, rather, the call to follow Jesus, it sits above everything. It judges everything. It replaces everything. It subordinates all other allegiances and obligations under the call to follow Jesus. He says anything, even the obligation to parents, is a hazard if it impedes the following of that call. Anything, if it impedes your call to follow Christ, is a hazard. Jesus will not share the throne of your heart. I want you to hear this clearly. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if you will not have him as your Lord. There's a difference. You can't have him as your Savior if you won't have him as your Lord. He will have all of you or none of you. It's an all or nothing thing. And I want to just take a step back real quickly here, because I realize this is sitting heavy. <laughs> These are heavy things, so I get it. So let me, let me let off the pedals a little bit, all right? Because if we think of following Christ only in terms of what it costs us, you're not thinking about it straight. If you, man, it's like, whoa, this sucks. Like, oh, I got to give up. No, you know what that's like? That's like, that would be like a guy on his wedding day getting ready to marry his beautiful bride, and all he's thinking about is, there goes wing night with all the guys. Like, that sucks. Like, I really liked, I liked that. Yeah, I don't know. I got to, do, I don't know. I mean, it was really fun just like broing out with the guys like every night and playing Mario Kart every night. Like, that was really fun. Like, do I really want to give that up to have my wife? Like, are you freaking nuts? That's crazy. Look at the way uh, the parable, the, these parables talk about it. The kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and he bought it. 
Okay, let me tell you another one. The kingdom of heaven, what is it like? What does it mean to call, give up things to follow Jesus? It's like finding a treasure hidden in a field in which a man found it and covered it up and then in his guilt and then in his joy, in, the, in his sense of I know I'm supposed to do. No, in his joy, in his joy, in his joy, he sells all that he has and he buys the field. In his joy. Because you see, when you see Jesus rightly, You'll give up anything that stands in the way of you getting more of him. Anything. When you see him for who he is, you'll give up anything to have him. This is what Paul says. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Again, another PG description. Rubbish, you know what that translates into? Dog shh. I count everything as dog compared to knowing Christ my Lord. It's nothing to me because I gain him. When I have him, I have everything. So I posed this question at the beginning. How much of our lives and devotion does Jesus demand of us? All of it. Everything. But what he promises is that it's worth it. It's worth it. He'll make it worth it for you. So does following Jesus have a cost? Absolutely. But the return on investment is unreal. And friends, the amazing thing is, is Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything he himself didn't do. You see, for Jesus to come and save us came at immense cost to him. Think about it. Our God became a man. He entered our world, mistreated, never known or respected for who he was. And then he dies a criminal's death on the cross for you, for me, for all of the sin and the stupid things that we're supposed to run to God and we run to other things instead of him because we just prefer him better. It came at great cost to Jesus to save us and so because it came at great cost to us, we should give up anything and everything to follow him. He doesn't demand of you anything that he himself didn't give up. You know what's fascinating about this story is that the very, in the very end, this guy lost all that he had anyway. <laughs> his wealth, the things that he couldn't let up in the moment, guess what? They got plucked from his hands anyway. Because that guy's laying in the ground. He had to give it up anyway. And what's amazing, right? You think about this guy. I just think about it for a moment. He had all of these things together, religious actions, sincere, humble, but he only lacked one thing. But guess what? That one thing was everything. It didn't matter that he had everything else together. It didn't matter because he lacked a heart fully surrendered to the Lord. So guess what? I'm glad you're here doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you go to Bible study. It doesn't matter if you go to Fall Tree. It doesn't matter if you go on summer mission. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you lack a heart fully surrendered to Christ. It doesn't matter. God's not impressed. It's a good thing that you're here, but it doesn't ultimately matter. So let me ask you, friends, how is your love for Jesus? Do you love him? Do you have any feeling in your heart that resembles those parables that talk about the kingdom of God? 
Whatever that you're living for, is it willing to die for you? And I realize maybe as you're sitting here listening tonight, you're like, man, do I, how's my love for Jesus? Honestly, not there. I understand. Um, I'm no perfect model of wanting, uh, having a heart that's on fire for the Lord all the time. But here's a prayer that I pray so often is, God, I want to want you. I want to want you. I realize that my heart is divided, but I just want to acknowledge and pray and God, ask you to do something in me I can't do myself. God, help me to want to want you. And for those of you who are maybe here for the first time, um, maybe you've never placed your faith in Christ before, maybe you have questions, I, I hope and pray that you would press into those questions that you have. Maybe you need to ask God and just, just pray and just tell God, God, I want to know you. If you're there, pray you would reveal yourself to me. Help me understand, believe. You see, friends, Jesus is the greatest treasure and because he gave up everything to save us, we should give up everything to follow him. And I know that that hits each of us at different points, what it is that God's putting his finger on tonight. Maybe it's a dating relationship that you know you shouldn't be in, and you're hanging in there. Keep hoping that that person will maybe come around, they'll change. You're on a fool's errand. You need to end it. It's impeding your walk with the Lord. It needs to be done. It needs to be done tonight. And others of you have other things going on that you need to let go of and be done with. So let me give you a moment right now and pray. Ask God to, do, to work in your heart. I'm going to bring the band up. And let me pray for you. And take this time. Don't miss this moment. If you need to sit during music, you sit. You talk to the Lord. You pray, all right? But let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for the treasure that Jesus is. And Lord, I know every single one of us, we would acknowledge that we just don't see him that way so often. So many times we can just feel afraid of what you'll do if we actually let go and we actually surrender and we actually follow through on what you're going to do. That We think it's going to mean our misery. But Jesus, you are more for our joy than we are. And so Lord, I pray that for my friends, I pray that you would speak to them in this moment. I pray that you would put your finger on the things that they they need to surrender. They need to let go of. They need to turn the other direction, repent of, and give over to you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that we don't have to do a bunch of dance steps to get your love, to inherit eternal life, that it's about what Jesus has done. We pray this in his beautiful name. Amen.